Welcome to the Alliance Party After Dark, a podcast for the politically aware brought to you by the Alliance Party. Content for this episode was recorded on Sunday, January 24, 2021. And a good evening to you. I'm Dan Schaefer, the podcast producer. Our normal host, Greg, is out today, but he should be back in in a couple weeks. He's currently moving from Los Angeles to San Francisco, and I don't envy anyone in the process of moving. I've done it enough to know what an emotional and physical drain that can be. Anyways, today we're talking with the Alliance Party's Wisconsin State Chair, Dr. Michael White. Dr. White was born in Utah, lived in 10 different states and two foreign countries. He served in the Navy for five years, as well as the Air Force for 15 years, and he commanded two facilities in South Korea. He took dermatology, trained as a dermatologist at Harvard, um, and he helped pre- create TRICARE, the insurance program for military dependents and retirees. He also ran a residency training program at Wright State University for six years before moving to Wisconsin. He also ran the Mayo Clinic, or was a member of the Mayo Clinic from 2006 to 2020. And he was chair of dermatology in La Crosse, Wisconsin at Franciscan Healthcare. He's also chair of the Community Practice Division of the Mayo Clinic Dermatology Department, responsible for dermatology practices in the Mayo Clinic Health System for about six years. On the political side, uh, Dr. White worked on Jill Stein's campaign in 2016 and coordinated the volunteers for the recount. He was a co-chair for Wisconsin Green Party for about 18 months and was a national committee or was on the National Committee of the Green Party of the U.S. and a member of the Eco Action Committee. He also ran for governor of Wisconsin in 2018 as the Green Party candidate. He also ran for county board of supervisors in 2020 for La Crosse County as a nonpartisan candidate. Dr. White joined the Modern Whigs in the distant past, but then became active in the Alliance Party when the Modern Whigs morphed into the Alliance Party. Dr. Michael White, thank you for joining us today, and welcome to the Alliance Party After Dark. Dan, it's a great pleasure to be with you this evening. Well, thank you. You know, it's um, so you're being a doctor. I have like a gazillion questions about uh, about what's going on these days with with the COVID rollout. just, uh, just out of curiosity, do you think that the, uh, the, now the Biden administration has taken over? Uh, do you think they're taking a more effective approach to COVID? Absolutely. Um, there's, it's like night and day, the difference between the approach of the previous administration and what President Biden is doing. Um, I, I'll share with you that I've been following COVID before most people even knew about it. As it turns out, because of my other profession in medicine, I have a couple of uh, acquaintances and close friends that are directors of specialty hospitals in China. So I became aware of COVID in early to mid-January of last year when most people Mm -hmm. had no idea, had never even heard of it. And it turns out both of my acquaintances are directors of hospitals that had to send a lot of of their staff, internal medicine staff, general medicine staff, even dermatologists to the city of Wuhan to deal with the epidemic. So I was actively following what was going on and in communication with them. Um, As a result of that, uh, one of the things that happened is when everybody else was panicking, I got a shipment of kn95 masks which made it through our customs system 
from China as a personal gift because of letters I had written uh, to China, to my colleagues, which by the way, went viral in the Chinese media. Hmm. Um, so is the Biden administration taking a more effective approach? Absolutely. The principles of dealing with an epidemic is first you have to find out who has it, mm-hmm. and then you have to contain it, and you have to attempt to treat it. Um, as everybody knows, we had a very ineffective rollout of our um, testing ability uh, was delayed by at least a month because of the way the FDA approached our first efforts at developing a test. In defense of the Trump administration on that particular uh, score, I think it had more to do with our regulations and how we approve things um, Mm -hmm. than any willful neglect or obstruction in developing a test. But thereafter, once they developed the test, uh, the process was never given the urgency that it needs until very late in the last administration when additional testing capacity was begun to be emphasized. Mm -hmm. Um, And there has also been the statement at the top that, oh, no, we have so many cases because we're testing too much, um, which is absolute nonsense. Um, and if anything, we should be testing as many people as we can, as often as we can, uh, so that we have some sense of what the scope of the epidemic really is. The challenge that the Biden administration faces right now is that the COVID epidemic has become politicized. It should be based on what reality is. For example, do masks work? Does social distancing work? Does shutting down our businesses work? And the defect that we have on the national political scale is the two sides, the Democrats and the Republicans have taken opposite positions and they're now fighting on a partisan basis instead of carefully and objectively evaluating the fact that there's evidence on both sides. Mm -hmm. For example, does the lockdown hurt business? Absolutely. Does it drive some businesses out of business? Absolutely. Is it effective in controlling in the epidemic? Well, that depends. Mm-hmm. So if we look at uh, Taiwan, if we look at China, if we look at New Zealand where lockdowns and social distancing and um, a lot of regular use of masks were adopted early mm-hmm. and cooperatively, by the personnel, the the people of the, these places, these countries, it was very effective in, in controlling the initial spread of the disease. They were able then to open up with the cooperation of the populace so that businesses would open up and people would wear masks and there would still be social distancing. And instead in our country, it became partisan. Public health should never be a partisan issue. It should also not be the case that one majority shall decide, well, we're going to ignore the impact of this decision on businesses or on students in school and so forth. So what uh, President Biden is doing and Fauci and Deborah Bricks and the other medical leaders are doing is we have ushered in a new era of transparency and openness of information. Mm -hmm. That is the first thing that they need to be doing to take care of this epidemic. Now, another role that I have in the background is I'm actually, I'm now retired from active clinical practice. And I volunteered all the way back in March 
I reached out to the local county health director and reached out to volunteer my services um, with the health department, either in testing or vaccination or whatever they needed based on my public health experiences in the military in Korea, where that was a part of the job of being a hospital commander in a deployed situation overseas. Mm -hmm. And and uh, we have a wonderful public health nurse, uh, Jennifer Rombalski in, in the county of La Crosse. And she eventually reached out to me in July and said, if you're serious about that, I'm gonna take you up on it. So I was involved for several months in our efforts to ramp up the testing that was available. And I am now working closely. There's a group called the Cooley Collaborative. Where I live is called the Cooley region because there's a lot of bluffs and narrow valleys referred to as Cooley along the uh, Mississippi River and La Crosse is right on, on the oh, river. Yeah. And this Cooley Collaborative is a cooperative endeavor between the two major health systems, um, Mayo Clinic in Wisconsin and the Gunderson Health System, as well as the other interested parties or concerned parties uh, in La Crosse County. And we are putting together a plan and an effort to deploy vaccination out into the community. Mm -hmm. Because normally people go see their doctor to get vaccinated. Right. Well, okay, La Crosse County has roughly 120,000 people. There is no way either of those two major medical institutions can deploy enough people to vaccinate 60,000 people in short notice, which of course assumes that they would all want to get the vaccine and that they would all be willing to come in and would all come at once, et cetera. It's just logistically extraordinarily difficult. And as has been covered in the news, the two vaccines that we have both require significant refrigeration the Pfizer vaccine much more so than the Moderna vaccine, mm -hmm. but that represents a lot of logistical difficulties. And so there's a lot of effort involved in that coordination process. And the Biden administration has determined that they're gonna to try to accelerate the deployment of vaccines, which has some downstream effects we can talk about if we have time, but it's a dramatic change from what has happened previously. Under the previous administration, the state of Wisconsin has stepped up to the plate and the state um, health department has done an admirable job of trying to field the vaccine. We're actually in the bottom quarter of states in terms of the number and even percentage of vaccines that we've been able to deploy. But that's because of logistical difficulties, not because of politics. The absence of leadership at the top is a great concern. A lot of people don't know that under George Bush, there was the creation of a pandemic influenza plan, mm -hmm. which was in place when they first became aware of the COVID virus. And basically the Trump administration threw it out the window and paid no attention to it. Yeah, I th It's my impression now that the Biden administration is working through that plan as it applies to the COVID epidemic. So yeah, I think it's going to be a dramatic approach and a big improvement and people should watch carefully for the news. Well, that that brings to mind another sort of question of mine. I think you, you sort of touched on it was um, I was, it, it feels like, um, who was that? General uh, Gustav Pima, I think was the one that was in charge of the federal distribution of vaccines. 
But as I recall, that plan was really just to sort of drop the vaccine off at the doorstep of each state. And there was, it seemed like there was very little concern over what happened after that. You know, what, and my, my question is, and why Wisconsin may be different, but there are a lot of states that I believe are just simply caught flat footed. They, they weren't ready for a vaccine distribution plan, or is that just my wrong impression or is that accurate? I'm not, I'm not certain. I think it's a good question. I can really only speak about Wisconsin. Mm -hmm. The Wisconsin uh, Department of Health Services has a active webinar for all providers and all concerned uh, persons in the medical fields, Mm -hmm. uh, which has been going on a weekly basis since early in the, um, in the development of our reaction to the, to the pandemic. Um, you can't see it because this is an audio, but I have a big three ring binder of material produced both by the CDC and the Wisconsin Department of Health Services um, in terms of how the vaccine must be deployed, how it must be received. Wisconsin has a Wisconsin immunization registry, which is an online tool that we use. And one of my responsibilities is to know how to use it and make sure I cross the T's and dot the I's and that people are prepared to receive the vaccine. Mm -hmm. I don't believe that a similar level of preparedness exists uh, across the country. And I would argue that that was the responsibility of the pandemic um, control and planning board um, that was basically disbanded by the Trump administration a couple of years ago. Um, And I think that that the CDC has attempted to fill in the void. Um, but again, they've been impaired by politics, which has no no role in this kind of response. Mm-hmm. I, I will say that I believe that some of the rapid movement of the uh, vaccine stocks was facilitated by the military and government institutions. And that's to the credit of the previous administration. They were able to move some resources mm-hmm. into effective position, but it appears just like you allude to, it appears like, okay, we're dropping it off. Now we're done. Yeah. And, and there is a lack of coordination. Yeah. Well, it's too bad. Um, it, it, um, I, I know I speak to my son, he's out in, uh, he's in California, I'm in Missouri, and um, he still doesn't know what the plan is out there. I tell him, okay, just keep in touch with the uh, local county health board, I guess is the best bet for him. It's, it's what I've been doing here in, in, in Missouri. Um, and it does seem to be working out. Our, our The local county I live in, Missouri here, actually now has a website and uh, a place where you can go to register, tell them about yourself, what your age is, what your, you know, what your risk group is. So at least they have some sort of record about it. But I don't know what's going to happen after that, though. Well, you know, part of that is not politics. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's my personal opinion that part of that is the result of people don't get their news and information the way they used to. Mm-hmm. People don't watch television and television news the way they used to, and newspapers are a dying breed. So the ways to put that information out in the street uh, depend upon news conferences, which people may or may not catch, um, and they depend upon people actively going to, like in your case, the county uh, health health department website. Mm -hmm. That information is there, 
But there's also the fact that in some places, particularly in rural areas where I live, if you'll pardon the bad joke, I live in places where people can't spell internet, let alone use it. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, I actually have a satellite internet system because my uh, telephone line internet system was so bad that uh, CenturyLink is finally upgrading it after promising to do so for the last 10 years. Mm. Uh, So a lot of people don't have ready access to those kinds of information sources or, or don't use them. Um, So I think that's part of the problem that the uh, local governments have in terms of putting information out there is there's not ready dissemination of that information. They can hold a press conference, but they'll get 30 seconds on TV. Yeah. Yeah. That's too bad. I, I I didn't realize that too. I mean, there's, there's the, the, trifecta really of the loss of um local newspapers um i think that uh whatever information we do get right now is is very channelized and often very politically tainted uh, and the only reason why i knew to go to the county health department um was because uh, i had to travel to india some years ago and i went i was told to go to the county health department to get my uh vaccination shots for all the different diseases that i could potentially be exposed to uh six shots in all that was a really rough day for me but uh that that ingrained in my mind that uh you know that's that's the place you go for these types of things so uh turns out i guess i was right it's still the place to go for information on on covid so uh I'd like to, um, if I may, dovetail a little bit in, into a slightly different topic here of healthcare. Uh, one thing that COVID has done uh, for, I think, a lot of people, myself included, was to illustrate the difficulties this country currently has with uh, healthcare, healthcare in general. You know, we, we, a lot of people talk about, um, you know, do we have Medicare for all or do we have universal healthcare, public option? Um, I, it seems like now that we have a new administration, things are up in the air again. But you being a healthcare expert, um, can you give us some of your thoughts in that area? Uh, absolutely. I have to warn you that it's a bit of a hot button item for me, partly because of my specialty. I'm a dermatologist and a lot of the diseases, um, what is it? What's that TV show? Pimple Popper MD. People think <laughs> about trivial cosmetic uh, issues. Uh, mm-hmm. But in fact, we also treat a lot of skin cancer, including melanoma. And there are a number of serious uh, diseases, uh, for example, blistering diseases. Think of somebody having blistering and skin dying over much of their body, mm-hmm. or people who have the autoimmune diseases like lupus often involve the skin. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I deal with on a regular basis, or did deal with until I retired at the end of last month, is the egregious cost of medicine. So for acne, for example, there are some really new medicines that are cosmetically more appealing and and more effective. Okay, but they want $600 a month for a tube of medicine. Wow. Which is absurd. Uh, For psoriasis, you've all, all your listeners have probably seen the ads on TV for the various biologics, Stellara, Taltz, Cosentix, Humira, Enbrel, et cetera. Well, those, when they came out, started at 20000 a year, if you're paying cash. Now they're up to sixty dollars to $90,000 a year. Wow. And I'm sorry, it doesn't cost that much money to produce them. 
Yeah. Uh, they are unique medicines. There are a whole class of medicines called the biologics, and a lot of work went into developing them. But the drug companies have been allowed to get away with ripping off the system. Yeah. Pure and simple. And that was one of the things that led me in my prior political life to the Green Party was that I felt that neither of the two major political parties were addressing the cost of health care. Um, the other thing that, that sort of the question of what, what's it going to be like in the next few years, Medicare for all, public option, et cetera, that's going to be what the political debate is about. Mm -hmm. But a larger debate is the impact of electronic medical records or the electronic health system. Um, there's been a lot of heat about that. And I can tell you, it makes a lot of doctors' lives a lot more difficult in terms of the time that we have to spend doing documentation, a lot of which is not value added. Mm -hmm. That being said, the new medical systems that are out there are extraordinarily good at using artificial intelligence algorithms to help us do our job. Mm -hmm. So that if I want to order a certain new medicine, it's actually an old medicine that we use a lot of called azathioprine, the EHR, electronic health system or EMR, electronic medical record, reminds me, Dr. White, you need to order this special lab test because this person may have a genetic defect that would make the medicine dangerous for them. Mm. And oh, by the way, the antihistamine that you want to order because they're terribly itchy interacts with their heart drug. You really don't want to do that, do you? Mm -hmm. And so there's a lot of utility to the electronic medical records but they often have a deleterious effect in terms of the time that's required to do the job and also the sense that it's taking away our autonomy as physicians and affecting adversely our relationship with the patient because we're spending so much time documenting. We don't have time to talk to the patient. Yeah. Um, so I think that those issues, the cost of healthcare, the cost of the medicine, the availability, availability of access, or lack of access are actually more pressing issues than the issues that are going to get all of the press. Uh, and so the Republican Party is going to adopt one set of positions that are going to be rigid and the Democratic Party are going to adopt another set. And neither of them is going to be focused on what we need to do to make sure basic health care is available for everybody, that the cost of medicines are not outrageous, and that the cost of medical insurance doesn't break the bank. They're focusing on positions, and we should be focusing on the issues and solutions. Very well put. I, 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 I um, you, you started talking about medical costs and costs of six hundred dollars for a for a tube of medicine. Um, I guess you know one thing I do is I go to places like OpenSecrets.org. I'm sure you've heard of that. They they track all the politicians and what sorts of um what sorts of, uh, uh, where they're getting their money from, basically, their campaign finance coming from. And you'll, you, you can just go right down the list. Uh, both Democrats and Republicans, although I'd have to say Republicans look a little bit more prominent in this area in terms of accepting lots of money from uh, big pharma and medical companies and so on. So it, um, is there any sort of control on this? Uh, you know, I know a lot of people that are dependent on insulin, for example, um, is that, I know that they're trying to control the cost of some of these medicines, but I know that insulin since the mid-1980s has been synthesized through 
um, you know, basically genetic engineering on, on, on certain like E. coli bacteria and such. Bottom line is it's not that expensive to produce it anymore. Um, so why would the cost go up on some of these medicines? Is it just because they're allowed there, to have there's, these monopolies? There's no rational, um, defendable explanation for it. There's a book that's worth reading. Um, the last name of the author is Angel. Um, the truth about the drug companies, how they lie to us and what to do about it. And it's probably almost 20 years old right now. The book was written by a former editor of the New England Journal of Medicine. So she knows what she's talking about. Uh, again, the title of that book is The Truth About the Drug Companies, How They Lie to Us and What to Do About It. Um, so if you can't tell, that is a hot button issue for me. Mm -hmm. um, and and I, I would share by way of full disclosure, in the early 2000s, when I was running a training program, um, I was approached by one of the drug companies, she'll go unnamed, um, to be involved in the rollout of one of the biologics. And I was selected for that because I was the chair of a department and running a training program. I was an influencer. Mm -hmm. they, they like to call us key thought leaders. Yeah, okay, I'm mm -hmm. not so sure I like that title, but whatever. We initially were involved in a study to find out what would happen to show how rapidly people would benefit once they were taken off a traditional medicine and put on one of these new biologics. And it turns out the biologic in question, Reptiva, no longer exists because after it had been out for about seven years, a number of concerning side effects uh, appeared and it was taken off the market. Mm -hmm. um, but when we were involved in the study or in the negotiation to be part of the study, we had to review the uh, consent, informed consent for the study. And, and my university and I insisted on some sort of language in the informed consent. Okay, what happens when you're done with the study? If you're given this drug for free and the study is over, are they gonna continue giving you the drug for free or does it now depend on your insurance company? We just want to tell the patients what that is. Mm -hmm. And we were prohibited from doing so and wound up not participating in the study. Mm -hmm. What I learned later is these kinds of studies are really not truly research, although they like to claim they're spending a lot of money in this research trial. No, this is a seeding trial, oh. as in planting a seed. These trials are designed to get, quote, key thought leaders, close quote, prescribing the medicine yeah. and get them used to using the medicine, get a population of patients t seated with the medicine that they're going to want to continue. So they call it a research study and it's actually a marketing tool. And this is typical. And then a lot of the uh, doctors involved with that would get lucrative money for participating in these trials. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned opensecrets.org. There's another one that I want to mention to the listeners, nofreelunch.org. No Again, nofreelunch.org. That's all one word. That is a institution, an organization of medical professionals says, I'm not taking any money from the drug companies. And I've been a member of that and subscribing to its precepts for more than 20 years mm -hmm. um, because I became aware of how the drug companies manipulate 
doctors in the office and also how they manipulate residencies and residents. And that's a topic for another hour long yeah. podcast at some point, because we don't have time for it today. But those influences have been allowed to run amok. Also, in my opinion, strictly personal opinion, with our legislators. Yeah. And that's the biggest single reason why they have not addressed the problems. Yeah. And it doesn't uh, even mention the fact that uh, a lot of the money that's used to create some of these more um, uh, front-runner drugs uh, are are subsidized, at least partially, by uh, NIH um, universities and so on. So but when it comes to getting the patents on these drugs, the companies hold on. Well, to actually, them, right? actually, that's not quite. I mean, that's accurate, but it's kind of misrepresents what things. So, okay. in the '80s, I think around 1982, uh, under the Reagan administration, there was a decision that was made. They would take the majority of funding of a lot of research away from NIH. Mm -hmm. uh, which would then exercise all kinds of controls over some of this stuff. And they would let the drug companies pay for it. Mm -hmm. So when the drug companies are writing the checks, they get to decide what gets published. Mm -hmm. And there has been a lot of blowback when we're discovering they've been hiding trials that didn't show the beneficial effect they want. Mm -hmm. So that the very research that was getting published was in fact, uh, biased in many cases. It would only show the positive trials. It would only show uh, those things that the drug companies want to. And that, that leads to the point that the influence of money in health policy and the influence of corporate money in politics are tied. Um, there is a move across the country to get corporate money uh, out of politics. Mm -hmm. uh, a major player of that is an organization called Move to Amend, mm -hmm. which is pushing state by state to amend state policies at the state level to make large corporate donations uh, illegal. Mm -hmm. um, and the, the Alliance Party, I think, is unique in that it is a position of the Alliance Party that we are not going to take uh, large corporate money that we want to make sure that corporate money does not have a disproportionate impact uh, on politics. Yeah. Um, and the, the values of the Alliance Party are such that our ethical position at the starting gate is we're not going to go down that road. Yeah. I'm glad you mentioned the move to amend because I actually spent some time with uh, their director, uh, Caitlin Saposi-Belknap. I, I don't know if you know who she is, but she's... Uh, the director, who is extremely uh, motivated, um, a, a real dynamo, really, in in pushing the the narrative uh, from move to amend. Um, uh, totally an amazing person, and it's an amazing group too. I, I would really like to give them more credit than I do. Um, so moving on, we're kind of getting into uh, a little bit of. Uh, politics here. And I want to sort of move along to something something uh, a little bit different here. Um, we saw on January 6, uh, I call it an insurrection. I think most people call it an insurrection. And is how far do you think we should go? And I mean, putting on your taking off your doctor hat for a moment, and put on your political hat, how far do you think we should go in pursuing this uh, insurrectionist movement and and prosecuting people involved in it and and is it really a case of unity versus law and order, in your in your opinion? 
answering the last one, I'm going to defer for the moment while I wrap my head around exactly what that means. Mm -hmm. But how far should we go in prosecuting the insurrection? So let's divide it into two separate um, or three separate uh, sub elements. One is the president. Number two is legislators or members of government, which could include, for example, police officers um, or other members of the administration uh, or even the military. Uh, and then the third group would be the rioters themselves, the insurrectionists themselves. Mm -hmm. um, so the last one is the easiest one. Um, nobody in their right mind in this country should think that it's okay to break down windows and doors and storm into our Capitol building while armed with the intent of forcing a political action on our elected leaders. And those people should be prosecuted to the full extent of the law. And I wanna be clear, that's my personal opinion. Yes, I'm the chair of the Alliance Party of Wisconsin. I don't know that the party has taken an official position um, and I'm going to stop using the word position for the moment and mm -hmm. say it is in our best interest to make sure that when people try to overthrow the government, that we prevent them and we prosecute them. Mm -hmm. Now, taking up the middle group, those uh, legislators or other, uh, let's say that there were security police or there were uh, other staff that worked for the Senate or the Congress or the apparatus of the government that were actively colluding to allow this and facilitate things. I'm not saying any such thing happened, but suppose there were somebody that was giving plans of the Capitol building to insurrectionists, knowing that those insurrectionists were actively planning to assault the building and maybe even take prisoners. Mm -hmm. Same logic applies. That is a violation of the oath of office. It's a violation of your duties as an employee of the government. It's an attempt to undermine and uh, subvert the government and the election process in the United States. And those people should also be prosecuted to the full extent of the law. Now, coming to Trump, that's a hard one for me. Uh, I personally believe that uh, President Trump should be tried in the Senate and should be convicted on the evidence uh, when it has appeared. Mm -hmm. um, I lack confidence that the Senate will be the impartial body that it is supposed to be in the minds of the people that framed the Constitution paragraphs about trial in the Senate. Mm -hmm. I think from reading it, because I read these, these uh, chapters of the Constitution several times, I think they had in mind uh, that there would be something like a king that was trying to subvert and overrule a Senate that was united against them. And I don't think the framers really contemplated the position that we're in where we have hyper-partisanship and it is the tyranny of one majority party over the minority mm -hmm. so that um, when he was impeached, the first Senate trial was... Oops. I think we lost. I think we lost Michael. Michael, are you there? I, I just lost your audio. Okay, oh, yeah, I, th I think I hit a mute button by mistake. So okay. coming back right. to the Senate Senate trial, I think that the first time around was purely hyper-partisan. 
Um, the second trial, I think there's a reasonable possibility that the Senate will uh, pursue and comply with and live up to its fiduciary duty to the to the Constitution and to the people of the United States, and that there will be something that actually approximates a trial. It's worth noting that Gerald Ford thought that doing the same thing with Nixon would be harmful to the country and to the body politic at that time mm -hmm. and chose to pardon um Nixon. Nixon. Yeah. Um, I think that this circumstance is totally different. Uh, what Nixon was a party to and accused of was a cover-up, not active uh, subversion and not inciting insurrection. And the order of magnitude um, of the offense, if if it's real, and I personally think it is, as you can tell, mm -hmm. um, is such that we, we actually have to pursue that uh, Biden and the Senate really has no uh, choice. And I think President Biden has been very wise in staying out of it and leaving it up to the Senate. But again, the very nature of the Senate trial and the very nature of previous trials is such that it's an argument for why we need a major third party, because yeah. it all boils down to partisanship in the Senate unless it is truly egregious. And in this case, I think it is. Mm -hmm. But in the previous trial, had there been a third party with 5% or 10% or 15% of the body of the Senate being a member of a third party, then I think we would have seen a more honest and fair and open trial and not just simple hyperpartisan rhetoric. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I, and that's uh, just to backtrack a little bit. That's what I was getting at when I talked about unity versus uh, law and order. I, I think that uh, in the case of Gerald Ford uh, pardoning Nixon, um, I would agree with his decision um, because it was in the interest of unity. It was in, in the interest of, hey, let's put this all behind us. But it is a matter of, of I guess, the... Um, intensity of with with which the law was broken and so in this case here does law and order uh do we do we continue to pursue uh trump on a law and order uh basis versus you know, appealing to people's unity and saying okay let's not do this because we're going to drive a wedge through the country well the, the argument that people put forth that we don't want to be like other countries where the winning party prosecutes the other party right and i agree with yeah. that we don't want to follow that model but in this case, that's not what we're seeing. What we're seeing is the elected leader is alleged to have fomented insurrection. It is clear from what's available in the public media that he has lied to many people about the outcome of the election. He is accused and there are audio tapes of him trying to pressure the Secretary of State of Georgia to find votes to overturn the election. Hmm. And that process hasn't stopped. Yeah. That is still going on in the hyperpartisan position that we're in. And so the challenge is how do we as a people and how do we as a party help heal that? You know, I would observe that we got over the Civil War, mm -hmm. maybe not perfectly, but we haven't lost 600,000 American lives in combat in this situation as we did at that time. And it's still possible to heal. Neither 
side is adequately taking ownership of that. Although I would argue that even, even Mitch McConnell is trying to mm-hmm. in his own way. But the opportunity for the Alliance Party moving forward and for all citizens that are paying attention to politics, sometimes for the first time, lets us establish a new paradigm of accountability, of civility, of a transparency in government. And let's find a way to focus on the issues and the truth instead of partisan positions. Yeah, and that's a good segue into uh, the final version of this, uh, or the final part of this interview. And that really, you've already gone into that territory, is uh, opportunities for the Alliance Party. I mean, we're a lot of people look at our current uh, situation now that Biden is president. Uh, is this a relatively quiet period? Um, maybe. Uh, I don't know. I don't think that the unrest is over with. I have this sort of um, sort of Damocles hanging over my head, feeling that uh, something else is going to drop soon. But nevertheless, um, there are opportunities, uh, I believe, for third parties, particularly the Alliance Party, to um, get uh, to get in front of people and say, "Look, people, the two-party system has failed us." So, what are your thoughts well, about that, that? That's exactly the point. And we, uh, people, so as you know, you we alluded in the introduction. I worked for Jill Stein in the. Uh, 2016 campaign. And my daughter is a devoted Democrat. And she was furious at me, blaming me personally mm-hmm. for helping um, Hillary Clinton lose that election. And and, and that's not fair. Mm, no. It's not fair yeah. because, first of all, okay, Hillary lost the state of Wisconsin by some 24,000 votes. Yes, Jill Stein's 32,000 votes, if everyone in Wisconsin, if every one of them had gone to Jill Stein, Jill would have won the election. Yeah. But if you want to play that game, you also need to look at the 60,000 votes that Gary Johnson, the Libertarian Party, got in that election. And if you're going to give Jill's votes to Hillary, you better give the 60,000 Libertarians to Trump because they're certainly closer to Trump than they were to Jill Stein. Mm-hmm. But, but it's ignoring the fact that Hillary lost that election on her own. And it's ignoring the fact that of one point four million voters in Wisconsin for that election, 700,000 people voted for Trump. So that's 350,000 women uh, voted. It's actually 1.4 million voted for Trump. 700,000 women voted for a man who was a serial sexual harasser and admitting it. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, there were lots of groups that voted for Trump that were voting against their own self-interest. So blaming 32,000 people, two-thirds of which were new voters that wouldn't otherwise have voted, and some of them, frankly, would have voted for Trump over Hillary, um, you know, that's that's illogical and inappropriate, but that's the hyperpolarized world that we live in. Yeah. So the let's talk about the filibuster for a moment. Because we're worried about the filibuster moving forward in a Senate that's 50-50. And what's going to happen is Biden going to be able to push through his his agenda. Well, the filibuster is a tool which is used by the minority party, whichever one that is at the time, to obstruct the functioning of the Senate on an issue that the minority party is otherwise going to lose. Mm -hmm. 
that in turn reflects the pattern that we have seen development since the end of World War II, where every cycle, it's the tyranny of the majority party. Mm-hmm. We have a duopoly in politics where it's the Democrats on the left, Republicans on the right. Now, their positions and their very composition have changed over the last 50 years. Um, at one time, it was the Dixiecrats and the Southerners were the Democratic Party. Now, the South is primarily Republican, um, and it still reflects too much tribal politics or identity politics any way you look at it. Yeah. But as long as we have a duopoly that controls the political discourse, as long as no other voices are allowed, that practice will continue and our Congress and our Senate will become non-functional because each is trying to win and wrestle final control from the other and impose their dogma, impose their version of truth, ignoring reality, ignoring data, and ignoring the possibilities for cooperation. But if we introduce a new element, a practical center element, we can change that dynamic. We can become the fulcrum. Now that, you know, right now we are smaller than the Libertarian Party and the Green Party, but neither of those two parties are primed to do that. The left the, the uh, Green Party is trying to be more left than the Democrats and waiting for everybody to come around to their point of view. And I can tell you, having been intimately involved with the Green Party, they don't play well with anybody that's not a Green. Mm-hmm. The Libertarian Party is not necessarily more right, further right than the Republican Party, but they just want less government, period. And they have no meaningful solution to a lot of our problems, except that it shouldn't be a government problem. Right. The Alliance Party is the only party where as a element of our basic values and our basic principles is we want to seize the middle. We want to get away from hyper-partisan positions and these partisan temper tantrums that we see on a daily basis in the Congress and the Senate. And we want to focus on what does the science say? What does the data say? Not what is the position, but what's the problem and how do we fix it? So that's our opportunity. But the challenge is we have to get our message out to the people that matter, to the ordinary voter. And so our challenge is to find ways to put a short version of that in front of the average voter. The shortest version I can come up with is our two-party system is not working. It's broken. It's getting worse. Help us fix it. Do you think that um, it, it, it's it's one thing to say that we would like to have the Alliance Party uh, playing at the local and the national level, but the, we have this plurality voting system in the U.S., which is which is actually a very antiquated way of voting, antiquated even from the even during the time the Constitution was written, as I understand, they, they modeled this plurality voting system off of. The only systems they knew how to model it off of, which is like, you know, now is probably over 200, 300 years old. That's this first past the, the post sort of um, sort of uh, voting. Um, and it, it basically says if you have three parties and each one gets one third of the vote, but one of them happens to get like one more guy. Right. And so that means they can take the mantle of the winner with only having 33% of the vote out there. So 
I guess what I'm getting at is, do we need to do we need to change the system as well? Do you think? There's we do, and and there's two elements of that. One is a hyperpartisan issue, which is mail-in ballots, absentee ballots versus in-person ballots, and I'm going to try to avoid that, except to say that the Republicans have some good points on their side of the argument that it is an opportunity for fraud under some circumstances. Mm -hmm. The Democrats have said, okay, but show me the fraud because it hasn't happened. That doesn't mean that it isn't possible. The former national security advisor had an editorial or opinion article in the New York Times several years, a couple years ago, um, that the solution, one of the solutions to that is open source voting software. So yeah. in Wisconsin, which is a state I know the most about, my vote depended on the approval of a private company. Mm -hmm. yeah. Now, let me say that again. My vote was dependent upon the approval of a private company because the software running our voting machines was not in the hands of the state government, even though state law said that it had to be. The companies had just refused to hand it over. And the Jill Stein recount accomplished a couple of significant things. One of which is as a result of her lawsuit and her recount, the companies that own the software eventually turned it over to the state for the first time and the state could actually get their hands on it and review the software. Mm -hmm. The second thing that happened was that because of that recount, the Wisconsin Election Commission, which is an extremely careful, thorough and bipartisan body, put in place risk limiting audits, 5% of every election is audited before it's certified. And there have been calls to do that across the country for many years, which have not been uh, lived up to. So that's one approach is we can make our elections as transparent, as open as possible. Mm -hmm. The next one is the thing you're kind of hinting at, but didn't bring up, and that's rank choice voting. Yeah. There are places that do that. Now, in in Georgia, what we saw is neither uh, there were three candidates and none of them got a clear majority. So it went to a runoff mm -hmm. of, of two candidates. The two candidates were the most votes. That's one way to do it. Yeah. The other way is ranked choice voting where, okay, your candidate that you voted for of the three or four or five or six, however there is in last place. So rather than not counting your vote at all, which is what happens now, we're going to ask you who your second choice was. Your second choice now gets added to the totals and do we, are we now down to a clear winner? No. That system exists in the state of Maine, but they didn't actually call it into place because there was a, a clear winner. There are uh, cities and states and counties where that system works in the United States. It's out there. People can go look at it. I personally would like to see us advocate for that at the state level and the national level, because that takes away the bogus argument that, well, if you're a third party candidate, you're just hurting one of the two major candidates. Sure. Well, if that's the case, they deserve to be hurt, number one. Yeah. Number two, you want to really disenfranchise 30% of the electorate because we're going to vote for the number third party, the number three person, whoever that is. That's inappropriate. We should not be disenfranchising, in disenfranchising anyway anybody under any circumstances and the way to make that work is to in place put in place a ranked choice system so again 
that boils down to voter integrity, transparency of the election system, transparency of the software, risk limiting audits, and ranked choice voting. If we put those in place, our elections will be vastly more secure, more transparent, and more fair. Yeah. It's interesting you mentioned uh, open choice or, or open source software. Um, maybe a lot of people don't realize this, but all the encryption algorithms that we use these days, that's all open source. It's published by the that's IETF right. and uh, Internet, Internet Engineering Task Force. Uh, so there well, are. Well, not only that, mm -hmm. our government depends on open source software. USS yeah. Zumwalt, which is a guided missile cruiser, is actually powered by Red Hat Enterprise Linux by RHEL. The yeah. all of the software for that ship is open source Linux software developed by Red Hat. I, I hate to uh, so another disclosure. My son works for Red Hat. Okay, right. which is why I'm aware of this. And they're now part of IBM. IBM yeah. But the software is open source. The software is free. Mm -hmm. Where IBM Red Hat makes their money with the government is providing support for the software. Yeah, And the software is open and can be inspected by anybody. And I'm yeah. talking to you via our Zoom link, which I'm running on open source software, another version of Linux, Linux called Pop! OS. Mm -hmm. It's an op free open source software. And I advocate for that. I'd like to see our educational institutions use as much open source free software as possible. But that's that's a rant for another day. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm a big fan of open source. I use Linux uh, at my full time job <clears throat> as a software developer, plus uh, at the home here. So, um, it, one other thing too was, uh, I, I, did you mention open primaries as well? Because that's another uh, place where democracy, I think, really falls short, or our modern day democracy falls short because we don't have these uh, we have these threats of somebody being out primaried. And that means that the most, only the most radical people end up, you know, winning the, uh, the, the primary for that. And party. I'm going to, I'm going to punt a little bit about that because I don't think I have thought carefully enough about it. I do know that the, I have local friends that are Republicans and local friends that are Democrats and, and I'm an Alliance party member. In fact, I'm the, as you know, I'm the chair. But, but I believe in working with what I have to work with and have worked with members of both parties on various issues. And I can see elements of both sides of the argument in these open primaries and closed primaries um, circumstances. And so I haven't thought it, about it carefully enough to really have a position. And rather than take a position I just want to admit that I think it's a complicated problem that we should be looking at. Yeah. Well, we were privileged to have uh, Catherine Gale, uh, another fellow Wisconsinite to you, by the way. Uh, she co-wrote a book with Michael Porter called The Politics Industry. Um, I recommend that book as well because it's um, it really gets into... Uh, open primaries. It, it talks a lot about that. They actually advocate for what they call a top five primary system where um, everybody gets to, well, everybody who's qualified anyways, gets into the primary and you can have actually have a situation where you have uh, multiple people from the same party going into the primary and they're competing with each other. And um, I, I, I like that idea because that sort of helps keep the radical elements out of the party and people don't get out primaried 
Um, not saying that it's bad necessarily to be out primary, but it seems to be a tool that's used these days to ensure radicalism uh, that creeps into our major political parties. There is that element. There's also the fact that the each of the two major parties often has a preferred candidate. <clears throat> Just talk to uh, Bernie Sanders mm-hmm. um, and the intrusion of new ideas or new people is often controlled or uh, frowned on, or in some cases uh, faces active suppression. Um, and, and there are numerous examples of that uh, out there. Um, and, and to be honest, I think, you know, there is a cost to being political. Um, having run a campaign on my own dime uh, on a couple of occasions, uh, both the, the candidate for governor and the local um, candidate for county board of supervisors, it's expensive and you have to go out and you ask for money and, and get help. But you also put yourself at risk for uh, reprisals. So let's talk about Jill Stein for a moment. After the 2016 election, she was investigated by the Senate, I think it was the Senate Intelligence Committee, uh, for about three years on the Mm. allegation that she had been a tool of the Russians. And ultimately they said, well, we were wrong. Sorry about that. Paying no attention to the thousands and tens of thousands of dollars she had to spend out of pocket to travel to Washington to be um, to defend uh, herself, huh? interviewed yeah. and interrogated, and provide all of the documents and proof of everything she'd done and so forth, and that was nothing less than reprisal for daring to be out there as an independent voice. No. Um, and the media, if we really want to blame somebody for a lot of our political distress, we should start with the media. Look at the. This is an estimate. This is an estimate I'm quoting from another source, $10 billion of free publicity that Donald Trump got from the media before he was in his first primary. Yeah. And yet the Libertarian Party and the Green Party and other minor candidates couldn't even get an interview. And so the fourth estate has failed in its duty to make alternate voices available to the populace. Do you think that might be a result of the uh, of the um, I, I think it happened under the Reagan administration where they got rid of the fairness doctrine, where they yes, were I required. Do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they, they were required. I suppose the uh, the broadcasters were required to provide uh, at least attempt and make an honest attempt at providing equal coverage for all political parties and issues. Right. Yeah. And I'm hoping that. The Alliance Party, and frankly, I'm hoping the Libertarian and the Greens as well, get better coverage going forward because every one of those has something to bring to the table. Mm-hmm. And we need to be committed to listening as well as putting our viewpoint forward. Yeah. And that's what I like about the Alliance Party really is, is well, there's a lot of things I like about it, but one of the things is that the commitment to listening um, and I know that sounds somewhat trite, but if you're not uh, if you're not pushing a specific agenda, which the other two big parties seem to do, they, they're pushing issues. What you really want to do, I think, is is push behavior. Right, that the behavior must be, let's act civil, let's discuss this, let's compromise, let's do what I believe the founders wanted us to do in the first place, and that is. 
yeah, have a couple backroom brawls and, and duke it out back there, but come out with a compromise so that everybody gets something. And now it's a zero-sum game. You know, one guy wins, the other guy loses, or vice versa. Nobody really, you sum it up, it's all zero. So it's a zero-sum game. I, You know, I have some personal proposals. One is that Election Day is a holiday and everybody votes. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I think that uh, I had the privilege of talking to Ralph Nader some time ago. He talked about uh, Australia uh, requires everybody to vote. You're not only registered automatically, but it is your civic duty to vote. And <laughs> so turnout is really high there. Yeah, and, and I could argue for that. Um, uh, I'm a science fiction fan, have been since way back. And there's a book, um, Starship Troopers, by Robert Heinlein that talked about the mobile infantry of the future. And in that science fiction book, uh, after the collapse of the United States and other major political institutions, there was a period of chaos and then new systems of government were developed. And in that system, which they, it's never covered in the book, that's all history in the book, but the system that's in place at the time the book is describing you are not a citizen unless you serve in the military mm, or you mm -hmm. serve in a military-like governmental service. And so the only people that are allowed to vote is those people who have demonstrated by their putting their life on the line or giving a year or two of duty, say the Indian Health Service or um, care of our parks or a variety of other things. Only war, people yeah. that have demonstrated they're willing to put the welfare of the people ahead of personal welfare are given the privilege to vote. That's yeah, another system. Mm -hmm. And I don't know what the perfect one is. I just know that what we have is not working well. People are not taking it seriously. They're not voting in the numbers they should be. And so one of our responsibilities is to advocate for the value of the vote and the power of the vote. And if you look carefully at what happened in Georgia and the other a number of the other swing states, it was new blocks coming out to vote in larger numbers that had the most dramatic effect mm -hmm. on the election. That's moving true. forward, moving forward, the white European subset of our populace is going to be a smaller percentage than any time in the past of the body politic in the United States. And we need to find a way to include all of the members yeah. No matter what your ethnic, religious, historic background is, all of the cultural elements need to be at the table. We need to stop identity politics and everybody's an American. Yeah. I think that's a really good note to end on. Um, we're coming up, uh, I think we've gone just over an hour right now, so we need to kind of wrap this thing up here. Uh, we've been talking with Dr. Michael White, the Alliance Party's state chair for Wisconsin. Uh, Dr. White, I really appreciate you stopping by this evening. It's been a great pleasure, and I apologize for rambling on. <laughs> no apology necessary. It was all very, very interesting. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in to the Alliance Party After Dark podcast. Please consider subscribing to this podcast so that you don't miss any episodes. Each week, we'll bring you interesting topics from the Alliance Party. You may subscribe on iTunes, Google, or Spotify. Also, keep in mind that the podcast has a Twitter page at Alliance On Air. And if you have any suggestions for future topics or people we might interview in a future podcast, 
please drop us an email at podcast at theallianceparty.com. All content for this podcast is copyright The Alliance Party. Views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of The Alliance Party. This podcast is a production of The Alliance Party, a decade-long movement of fiscally conservative, moderate, accountable, and reasoned independents, former Democrats, former Republicans, and alienated voters who demand that our elected officials work in the spirit of nonpartisanship for all constituents and provide a better future for our country. This podcast was made possible by your donations to the Alliance Party. If you'd like to join the Alliance Party, visit the website at theallianceparty.com and drop in and see what we're all about and get involved. Volunteer your time, make a donation, submit an article or blog, or run for office. We'd love to hear from you. I'm Dan Schaefer, and on behalf of everyone at the Alliance Party, have a wonderful evening, a great week ahead, and we hope you drop in for our next show. Be safe, be aware. And please take care of yourself and those around you.